0: What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Exhaust. I am here for an exciting episode on a Leo Strauss essay with one of the best voices in podcasting, Alex (laughs) Preview from The New Thinker, one of my favorite podcasts. What's up, Alex?
1: Ah, It's great to be here. And I I know the Exhaust podcast, so I know there's that hardcore music playing. So...
0: I have to bring
1: bring the hardcore thoughts.
0: Yeah, you got to bring the hardcore thoughts. So I'm really excited to do this because we're going to talk a little bit. We've talked about Strauss on the show before, but we sort of want to give a second treatment here. I figured that you were one of the best gentlemen to invite on to talk about him. But before we talk about Strauss, I want to know a little bit more about you. So like, what's your background? How did you end up becoming a guy who teaches philosophy within a college of engineering and how did you come to Leo Strauss?
1: Well, yeah, so those are, I mean, the last, que- the the question about my job is probably the easiest to answer, which is that they <laughs> offered me the job.
0: And, so <laughs> and you took it?
1: I took <laughs> it, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was a great job. And I'm I'm very grateful to be here because you know, I teach small seminars, Mm twelve students. I have a great deal of freedom in what I teach in in my seminars. So I'm able to, you know, spend my time reading and talking and thinking about all the things that I love. So so that's that's an easier one. I mean, my background and my interest in Strauss started just kind of randomly. I was a physiology and neurobiology major. Initially, I Mm -hmm. wanted to be a doctor, but I didn't find it very rewarding. And I found my myself drifting towards philosophy, specifically to Nietzsche as a result. And then I just took a political theory course on modern political theory. And when we were reading Machiavelli, the the professor mentioned um, you know, this thesis by Strauss that they were hidden messages. I was like, okay, this sounds interesting, like really interesting.
0: So <laughs> I went
1: and got thoughts on Machiavelli out of the library. And I, I oh, read that was the- your
0: first? <laughs> yeah. And I,
1: I noticed very quickly there were 26 paragraphs in the chapter on the prints. I said, okay, this guy's up to something. Talked to the professor. He directed me to Strauss's uh, recently, at that time, published- Uh, course on the symposium, so I read that, and I was hooked on him and on Plato uh, Mm -hmm. at once. And then from there, I went to St. John's, which is one of our common roots, and then uh, finally, too too late to study with Ronna Berger because I had been most interested among Strauss's students in the uh, work of Seth Benardetti and mm-hmm. Ronna Berger had you know written on him and and very interesting work herself on Plato. So it just seemed like a natural place to go. So I ended up there, and and the rest is just my CV. <laughs> yeah,
0: right, exactly. Bernadetti, what an amazing essayist! He's incredible. I, yeah, I read ladder of love last year and I still think about it from time to time I'm always just like I need to get back to that I need to I need to give another treatment so let's talk about Strauss obviously since we're both products of St John's I don't think it's this isn't true in Santa Fe anymore I don't know how it is in, in Annapolis but both campuses were at one point sort of strongholds if you will of Straussian thought and for a while, Though this seems to have ebbed, he was basically lumped into this is how I, I received him critically in a way that he had sort of birthed, helped birth the neoconservative imperial order through his through the seminar room somehow. I think if you read him any charitably at all, that is obviously untrue. But who is this guy that seems to be sort of I would I don't want to say in the margins in like this way that he's an unimpressive thinker. But he seems to sort of like hang in the background in all discussions of sort of post-war thinkers.
1: Yeah, and and that period is so interesting. I mean, the interwar period first of all, and then the yeah. and then the onset of World War II, and then the reactions to the reactions to the repercussions of that interwar period. I mean, mm-hmm. this it's all very fascinating. How to put this simply? I mean, Strauss is. Just, let me start with the neocon thing. Strauss is not a neocon, and and that was a, that was an association built up by people trying to point the finger around the Iraq War. Right. And Mm -hmm. so they they try to make a connection through people like Paul Wolfowitz. It's very tenuous at at best. Right. Mm -hmm. That said, there is like a conservative strand in Strauss's thought. I mean, he is reacting to a lot of conservative thinkers. So there's a kind of conservative strand, but then a sort of anti conservative strand as well, because he's highly critical of many thinkers associated with the right to the far right, people like Mm Ernst Junger and, you know, right Heideggerians and, and sort of the
0: right Carl Schmitt
1: yeah. and then also Carl Schmidt, yeah. and especially Carl Schmidt. He's very critical of these these people. And he, you know, has that famous critique of Schmidt that moved Schmidt greatly. um mm-hmm. and and yet he is sympathetic to their critiques of liberalism and of modernity. right. And in fact, mm-hmm. this essay that we're reading uh, today has a similar strand to that. Strauss, ultimately, though, I think looking at him through the lens of left and right is a mistake because he is a, I think, a deeply fundamental thinker. Um, Mm -hmm. He can read thinkers on the left like Marx with incredible sympathy and and a deep appreciation for how they are or are not engaging with fundamental questions. And he's by no means a friend to sort of typical thinkers that are typical great philosophers that you see the right associated people like Locke. I mean, you don't get a sense that he's in any ways a a Lockean or anything like that. And Mm so, uh, if you're going to associate him with a sort of conservatism, it would be the fact that he turns back to the ancients, right? Which which is strange because on the one hand, highly conservative to go back to the ancients. On the other hand, that that's a a radical move, right? That's a sort of fundamental sort of argument. And so he's he's reacting to, you could say, the the sort of decay of liberalism specifically in Germany and trying to, especially as a Jew who you know, is looking at these reactions and the promises of liberalism to Jews in particular, of integration and a kind of safe haven, and seeing those promises broken by the Germans and trying to get back behind all this trend of thought and and think through in a fundamental way his own sort of political expectations and and get back to sort of the basic questions or problems of philosophy.
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean he seems to me a thinker but as most of his peers were as well a thinker born in a period of just incredible upheaval responding to that upheaval. I think people also under I'm glad you brought up the interwar years because I think people sort of nowadays anyway undersell the total annihilation of traditional life that was world war 1 like through violence, (laughs) you know, the culture of honor like disappeared as soon as the trenches were dug and things like that. Things that had held standards of politics and war together were just sort of incinerated and everything else, I think, not everything, many things. questions follow after that and other catastrophes create other dilemmas. So what's interesting about this essay, well, I wanted to ask you is it's hard to tell sometimes for me as as someone who's uninitiated or largely uninitiated in, in Strauss. Is this a lecture or an essay?
1: So this was a lecture. Okay. And and this I'm glad you asked that because, uh, so this was published in a collection of essays edited by Hillel Gilden, And in that collection, it does not clarify when he gave this. So I, I contacted the Strauss archive and this was delivered at Cornell on March 25th. 1964. So for those interested, I'll just put that out there. It was only published posthumously in that collection of essays. Why was it not published during his lifetime? Here I'll borrow an argument from Heinrich Meyer. He's pointed out that Strauss's Festschrift, which was t- published with the title Ancients and Moderns, was published in 1964. In 1965, in the German preface to the reprinted Hobbes book, Strauss clarifies that the theological-political problem has remained the theme of my investigations. Meyer interprets this as him trying to correct the record somewhat. You know, clearly in print that though ancients and moderns is a big theme in his writing, it is not the theme. Right. In fact, it should be viewed as subordinate or qualified by this this larger. Theological political problem. Just noteworthy on this, I'll add to Myers' remarks that in the 1952 preface to the American edition, from which he borrows heavily for the German version, he does not make this remark. So if something happened mm-hmm. between 52 and 64 that he's like, okay, I got to take this opportunity. He also does the same thing in the in the preface to the Spinoza book, the 1960s preface. So mm-hmm. so to be back to why it wasn't published. Perhaps he thought that publishing this essay after this has all happened in the same year and the year following might have obfuscated his qualification. And that's just a speculation. I have no evidence for this but my so but it is a classic it's it's a wonderful essay it is great as an introduction to the sort of these phases of modernity he talks about this stuff elsewhere and even uses this formula elsewhere specifically in classes but it is i think despite what i've just said about it maybe not being wholly represented i do think um it is a wonderful introduction and and that is not to deny actually he does Come across the theological political problem at a couple of brief moments, though so it's it's again very subdued in this essay.
0: Yeah, I would say it's 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 far to the background. I think it's an interesting, it's a very fascinating intellectual history that we get here. This formula of the three waves of modernity. I think it's very interesting. It's even more interesting that this is in 1964, and it opens with discussing Spangler, who. After the first couple paragraphs, does not appear again really until Goethe comes up towards the end, and then you sort of get some Spangler once more, and again only only mildly. But that's sort of the opening for I think a question, an opening question, if you will, about what has changed about this West that some are saying is in decline, and this is in part his I think his explanation for what has changed and why.
1: Yeah. And you get a sense in those two mentions of Spengler that Spengler is a kind of foil for him as a sort of risk in not doing your homework. So one way to think about what Strauss is laying out in this essay is a kind of primer on how to critique modernity, right? Mm -hmm. One thing I'll I'll say is the title, Three Waves of Modernity, obviously recalls the Three Waves of Laughter from Book 5 of The Republic. Mm. So one way to think about this essay is, while it is a handy guide, it is something of a kind of... uh, Sidian speech, right? It is a, a little bit idealistic. It's it's maybe the breaks are a little too clean. And in fact, one of the things I I really like about this essay is the more you read it, the more you start to see that Strauss is subtly indicating ways in which maybe, you know, the the sort of three waves are not so distinct. In fact, he's he starts off by saying look, this is not, it's not clear you can even speak of modernity as something, one. And then within each wave, there are these various echoes and breaks. And so you start to realize maybe things aren't aren't this clean, polished pig picture. Nevertheless, I think he felt it, it would be helpful to his reader or listener, because this was never published in his lifetime, to realize that when you're trying to critique modernity, it does require this sort of investigation. So Spengler, so to return to the question of Spengler, he's he's clear that Spengler is trying to treat, you could say that right, the decline or setting of modernity. But then it turns out much later that he's actually mostly concerned with romanticism, which is
0: mm-hmm.
1: one of the effects of Rousseau from the second wave right not a fundamental sort of treatment and so you could say Spengler's own sort of the eclipsing of Spengler as a figure or as a fundamental figure has to do with his failure to work through the problem of modernity fully to say nothing of the larger question of, of antiquity both both biblical Thought and and Greek thought in relation to modernity, all, all of which Strauss kind of lays out in a, in a kind of cursory form.
0: Right. So maybe we should talk about we should talk about the waves themselves and sort of what's going on there. And the first wave that he brings up, well, he he does this interesting thing where he says, you know, obviously, you know I'm paraphrasing here. The the initiator of the first wave wave is Hobbes, but if you look closely enough. It's actually Machiavelli, which I thought was a really interesting rhetorical move. He sort of starts with what I I think is people's assumed narrative about what Hobbes has meant to Western political thought. And I think that he almost puts that in to create an effect of saying, but there's actually this thing that's happening before Hobbes, and I know you've shared before. I think it was a piece of scholarship on on this sort of connection as well. So
1: the, yeah, there's so the, the it's interesting to bring that up because there's also an autobiographical moment there in this essay because Strauss himself in his early Hobbes book from I think 1935 uh, focuses. On Hobbes as the founder of modernity. And he's trying to get around that horizon. And this is picking up off the end of his Schmidt essay. But in a couple of places in the footnotes, he indicates, yeah, I should probably think about Machiavelli and Hobbes, how they relate. Mm -hmm. And then he says this again in the later preface from 1952. Yeah, I hadn't done that well. And 1952, in the wake of that time into the late, into the mid to late 50s, is when he's writing and then ultimately publishes the Machiavelli book. So I think Schmidt made this mistake. Strauss himself confesses to making this mistake and, and mm-hmm. corrects for it. Yeah, so just I mean, the reason I think one of the reasons, and he provides this reason here, that, that Hobbes gets this credit is because he takes Machiavellianism and sort of imputes it into a notion of justice. And Machiavelli, justice and law are are highly they get in the way of a wise prince who needs to change his modes, right? And adjust mm-hmm. according to circumstance. Hobbes takes the, what's called the extreme case. And here I'm borrowing from some stuff that Strauss does in natural right and history. But he takes the extreme case and he makes it programmatic, you could say, in a way. Mm-hmm. It's the state of nature. And that becomes the foundation for justice and law. And so, in a way, he takes Machiavelli and is able to get a kind of doctrine that becomes more palatable and and put it in a box rather than this kind of elu- elusive Princely virtue of of prudence, right? So, yeah. Sorry, I just wanted to.
0: Clarify. No, 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 I think that's really important because we have a couple things that are really important to this to this first wave through Machiavelli, and one of them is the sort of the lowering of the sites of political philosophy. So the target is not necessarily excellence in the ancient sense, but something more common, and they're is also the departure from what it's hard to figure out how to say this, I think, but really that history becomes, I know that's an anachronistic phrase. Maybe I should put it this way. Political phenomena become more plastic for Machiavelli and not just in the way that we use pejoratively Machiavellian, but that the Prince has the ability, the capacity to exert a power over nature that was only entertained as a form of hubris or folly in the ancients. Whereas for Machiavelli, that is sort of the supreme opportunity that the prince has.
1: Yeah, and this this is so you're you're talking now about Prince Chapter Six, and there you get this discussion of matter and form, right? Strauss puts it in the way he puts it in three waves of modernity is that is that it, the political problem becomes a technical problem, or another way to put this, if you're if you're a founder on the Aristotelian model, you're looking towards nature or towards the variety of regimes, dividing them into better and worse, and then you're going to best maybe the best practicable, maybe the best simply regime. You've got all this in mind. You've read the politics. You're a good founder. And, and then you turn and you try to the best of your ability to impose the best possible form on the matter. Uh, for Machiavelli, and, and we have to be careful here because I do think Machiavelli does distinguish certain regimes into better and worse from the standpoint of safety and self-preservation. I think he's more Republican than, it, than he uh, seems at first. He seems to be an advisor of tyrants. But in any case, For Machiavelli, no, you have great, great latitude uh, Mm -hmm. in how you can approach politics and what kind of form. You just need to to get the right knowledge, right? You need to read your history, observe contemporary events, look for an opportunity, which is a kind of scattered, indeterminate matter. This is where you can see the connection to, like, Bacon. And Mm -hmm. you impose that form on the matter, right? It's fundamentally malleable, which is to say that Ultimately, Machiavelli is concerned with this this more fundamental philosophic question, what is the nature of the world or of things mm-hmm. or of being, right? And that means that he is consciously, in doing this, setting himself in opposition to not just the ancients, when he says imaginary republics, not just the ancient Greek philosophers, but also the biblical tradition. To just add one more point to that, right? If you're going to say it's all imaginary republics, you're saying these are just Creative acts or impositions on the nature Mm -hmm. of things. And this is, uh, again, you know, now Machiavelli starts to sound like Nietzsche, and I think Strauss alludes to this at at a couple points.